0: Uh, Today's call to worship is a responsive reading uh, found in 817 in your hymnal. I will be reading the light print and Josh will be reading the dark print with you. Finally, built upon your strength in union with the Lord and by means of his mighty power, put on all the armor that God gives you so that you will be able to stand up against the devil's tricks fighting against human beings, but against the wicked and spiritual forces of the heavenly world, the rulers, the authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. So put on God's armor now. Then when the evil day comes, you will be able to resist the enemy's attacks. And after fighting to the end, you will will still hold your ground. So stand ready with the truth as a belt tied around your waist with righteousness as your impression and shoes as, you as your right. Peace. At all times, carry faith as a shield, for with it you will be able to put out and all the burning arrows shot by the evil one and accept salvation as a helmet, the word of God as the sword which the Spirit gives you. Do all this in prayer, asking for God's help. Pray on every occasion as the Spirit leads. For this reason, keep alert and never give up. Pray always about God's people. Today's scripture will be read, er, I will be reading it from 2 Timothy 4 7. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. What a wonderful, wonderful time to come together. I love this. I absolutely love to come and meet with God's people. How many of you kind of say, yeah, it's just kind of an incredible thing. This morning, I'm going to share from the scripture found. Actually, you don't need to turn in your notes, but I'm curious this morning to know how many have a Bible. Put your hands up. Put your Bibles up. Hold your Bibles up. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Can I encourage you just to bring your Bibles? Say, but we don't always read out of the Bible. I, there's just something good about carrying your Bible. How many believe that? Just something good. So let me encourage you to do that. This morning, though, I've given you notes in the bulletin, and uh, we'll be able to take a careful look at the one verse that I'm interested in right now to, to, to look at. Again, it's I fought the good fight. I, uh, before we get into that, though, just several things very quickly. Uh, first of all, my wife has a new puppy. I, I, there's no illustration behind this. It's just that I wanted you to know my wife has a new puppy. And uh, I did not want a dog, another dog. We've had dogs and animals and so forth when we had children still living at home and growing up and so forth. And uh, I didn't want this puppy at all. And I love this puppy. This, this, this and, and the puppy is not replacing me. I want you to know that, too. But uh, this morning, I'm all ready to go, and I got my suit on and my shirt, or I actually suit, pants on and shirt and everything, getting ready to go, and that puppy wanted a piece of me. She just wanted to lick me and everything, and so as far as I know, if you shake my hand a little while, it's clean. It's clean. No, no puppy slobber, no nothing like that, and so I'd like to meet you after the service and uh, shake hands with a very clean hand, as far as I know and understand. Uh, the subject of spiritual warfare is an extremely difficult subject. Before we get into that, though, I do want to uh, alert you to the fact that there is a book table in the back. Ginger will be back there after the service. Let me draw your attention to two books. One is Strategic Spiritual Warfare. I co-wrote this a number of years ago, almost 20 years ago now, uh, out of a deep concern for the body of Christ, and that is that uh, we don't know. I still don't know after preaching close to 30 years on this subject, still don't really know a whole lot about it. What, what helps me so much is to know this. Uh, Jesus knows a lot about it, and I know Jesus. And I think that's the safest way to approach it. Another book that you'll find back there, one of my favorite books on the subject of spiritual warfare, if you will, is called The Christian In Complete Armor. Listen carefully. This book was written almost 350 years ago by William Gurnall, and you'd think it was written just yesterday almost. It is that literally up-to-date. And so two books. If you prefer not to uh, uh, order books on the Sabbath morning, uh, don't worry about that. We'll make them available to you one way or another. The point is simply I'm interested in basically one thing, and that is that God's people have an understanding of warfare. Actually, when I uh, consider that, that's only the second subject that I'm concerned about. The first subject, in fact, of the two most difficult subjects I believe, personally now, I believe in the Bible, that's number two. Now, when I was back in, in school, I remember a difficult subject was history. No, English was worse than that. How many would say mathematics was the worst one of them all? When I got to college and I had to study... Uh, all kinds of different kinds of mathematics and so forth, because I eventually became, before I became a pastor, I was a high school uh, mathematics teacher. I taught mathematics. And uh, it, you know something? I, I don't like school. Don't tell any of the kids that I said that, but it was just not my favorite subject. But when it comes to the Bible, there are certain times when I, I almost want to say, don't tell the Lord I told you this. But I don't like to read. How many would, how many understand that? Now some of you that are voracious leaders, readers rather, I, I just, I envy you. Folks, I read a lot. You say, why do you read? Because I need the information and I need the understanding of what's going on around about me. I've come to believe this. You cannot bury your head in the sand and hope that somehow or another a lack of understanding in certain areas isn't going to bother you. Or you hear people every once in a while say, I used to fight spiritual warfare, and I want to say, you've been fighting it from the moment you were born, one way or another, because it just does not go away. And no matter what we do with it, to exclude it out of our lives, it's still there one way or another. And so we're going to talk about it this morning. You say, Ray, what's the number one subject most difficult to understand in the Bible? I believe it's the sovereignty of God. Why God allows certain things and doesn't allow other things. And the only way that I know to come to a better understanding of that is, once again, uh, study. Study the Word. I want to encourage you to be in this book every single day. Just it's amount. You say, but I don't get anything out of it. I'll tell you what, if you know Jesus and you receive Christ as your Savior, what the Holy Spirit is capable of doing is to cause an understanding to take place. I, I know I've read the Bible so many times, and I remember reading it as a young Christian, and I just didn't get it. And then all of a sudden, some day down, place down the road, someplace, all of a sudden, what I read that I couldn't remember, all of a sudden came back to me. That's the help of the Holy Spirit. That's the reason that this book is unlike any other book, if you will. This book is the living Word of God. And being the living Word of God, when you don't understand it, don't worry about it. But the Bible does say, my people perish for lack of knowledge, lack of understanding. And so, Lord, this morning we're asking that you'd give us understanding, that you'd help us to pursue a, 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 a road with you, a journey with you that will help us to understand these two things. One, your sovereignty, and two, that you'll help us to understand the warfare that's going on. Now, notice what Paul says again. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the, the race. I would just assume." that there was no warfare going on. But mostly, the warfare sometimes that we have in mind has to do with people. God makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 6 that although that Paul fought the good fight, he was not fighting people. He said, I have fought the good fight. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 6, and he says, we wrestle not against what? flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Back to point number one, if God is sovereign, why this battle? If God is sovereign, why do bad things happen to good people? And the question is always a big question, and especially it gets big when we suddenly hit something in life, oftentimes when somebody close to us passes away, when a child dies, and then we wonder, Lord, why did this happen to to who? To me. When I read, it about it in the, read about it in the paper, it's more distant. And I can be concerned about it, but there's really no question until something happens to me. I believe the only solution to that is simply to believe that God is a good God, regardless of what goes on in life. You say, you mean there are no questions or no answers to some of these questions? I believe there are answers, but I believe they get tucked away in the human heart individually and personally as we get closer to the Lord through this book. Meaning we've had some pretty big tragedies in our life, huge tragedies. And the thing that I think has been so good in the midst of those tragedies is to know the Lord and to feel and to sense God saying, I know, I understand, and it'll be all right. Uh, even though the hurt is sometimes so deep, and we wonder at times whether God really cares for us, whether he's jettisoned us somehow or another out of his grace, and none of that is true. If you've received Jesus, the unity thing about the word is simply, it is written, and I will never leave you, nor will I forsaken you. If you're full of fear this morning, and I would say about 90% of Christians I preach to across this nation are struggling with anxiety, depression, and discouragement, but I still believe the word, it is written, God has not given us a spirit of fear, and I believe we can move after that so that God begins to deliver us. God will deliver his people without question, but it certainly helps to have an understanding. It certainly helps to know and understand. And so this morning, as you look at basically, can I say, these are my notes, meaning simply, I'm going to pick and choose because they're my notes. Meaning if you're looking for a systematic approach to this morning, uh uh-uh. But I do want you to see four areas that I'm concerned about. The first area, in your notes on page one, seven things about the enemy every Christian must know. I must know these things. I must realize that there is a battle out there, that God talks about this battle, that the enemy was uh, very real when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago. Jesus cast out demons. Demons are still being cast out of people today. Jesus said, I give you authority to do that, and it still happens today. But here's an interesting thing that I think is extremely valuable, and all I can do is just share it with you and say, it's something that I need to understand, and that is sometimes spiritual warfare has nothing to do with demon spirits. It has to do with the flesh in which I live, and probably with the pizza I had for dinner last night. Now, I want you to hear me on this, because there are some who teach that basically every bad thing happened because of a demon. On the other end of that spectrum, there are some that teach simply that there really isn't anything concerning demons, and especially if you're a Christian, you never have to worry about a demon. But everything in the New Testament that was spoken of concerning demons, concerning resisting the enemy and he will flee from you, were always spoken to Christians were never spoken to the world. When John talked about the enemy and he says in 1st John uh, chapter 5 verse 19 if you want to write some of these scriptures down so you can look at them later really kind of a shocking thing sometimes we find but 1st John 5:19 John says by the Holy Spirit the entire world lies under the influence of the enemy of our soul I don't have much trouble with that today When I look about and I see the wickedness and the evil in the world in which you and I live, I certainly don't want to blame that on God. It didn't come from the Lord. It comes from the influence of the enemy. It comes from the flesh in which people live. It's demonic. It's of the enemy of our soul. makes me just that much more thankful and full of gratitude for the salvation that I have, meaning simply that by the time we get to point four in the notes, if you'll turn and look at that just for a moment on page two, What I'm thankful for is that I don't have to be afraid of the enemy. Let me say that again. I don't have to be afraid of the enemy. Why? Because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. If you're having trouble with understanding the salvation message, it's not just a matter of I believed on Jesus up here as mental ascent. The Bible talks about, no, we received Christ. And when we received him, he's made us different people. He's made us into if any man, any woman, be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. You know, when I first received the Lord, I didn't want to be a new creation. Because I wasn't sure what God would make me into. And quite frankly, I was afraid he'd make me into some of the super spiritual, like some of the super spiritual people that are already in this church. Or used to be here, I don't know. (laughs) And some of us worry, you know, am I going to make, be made into something that's not going to have a mind and be able to think and reason and so forth? Am I going to simply have to do what I'm told and I don't have a will? And I want to say just the opposite. It's true. God gives us a stronger will once we know Christ. It's simply that it's focused in a different direction. So that when we look at the whole subject of yielding or submission or obedience... It's not groveling on the floor before an almighty God. It's aligning ourselves with the King of kings and Lord of lords. And what an incredibly, incredible privilege that it happens to be. What I wish, though, had happened when I first received the Lord was simply that he had taken the flesh away as well. But it's still there. So Paul, in Romans chapter 7, this is spiritual warfare now, nothing to do with demons necessarily. He says in Romans chapter 7, it's not on your notes right now, but follow me very carefully. He says this, Paul the Apostle, The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I always find myself doing. Now, when he reiterates that a little bit later in Romans 7 once again, here's what you can tell if you read all of that chapter. Paul totally disliked the element of guilt and condemnation that kept coming to him because he wasn't doing what he knew was right to do. And he couldn't figure out why. He couldn't stay away from chocolate. I hope you caught, a, caught, a, caught on to that. How many have this problem like Paul and me? It's just a matter of the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I always find myself doing, and then the guilt comes, and then I find myself, how did I do that? What's the next word? Again. How did I do that again? Uh, with me, it's uh, it's Chocolate really is. I I was ministering the other day and uh, somebody gave me a great big huge piece of chocolate cake to take home. I knew better, but I ate pretty much the whole thing. I was sick for about, I don't know, probably 12, 14, 16 hours afterwards. Because... My body doesn't do good with sugar, and it doesn't do good with chocolate. And I believe that chocolate is one of the four main food groups, and so I'm in an incredible war going on inside when I see a chocolate cake. Anybody understand? How many know I'm not talking about chocolate cake? I'm talking about the things of the world that are worse than chocolate cake and can be hang-ups in numbers of different areas. Paul ends that chapter by simply saying, My hope is in Jesus, Christ in me. Is the only hope that I have for even destroying the flesh. And what a wonderful thing that is to be in Christ and recognize that there are times, now I don't have an anger problem today, but I used to. But today it's a matter of you just kind of wish you could slap people up the side of the head when they don't do right. Anybody understand what I said, you know? Or you could follow somebody off the freeway when they're tailing you to the point where it just makes you, does anybody get upset besides me? Here's the wonderful thing about Jesus today. I don't have to act out inappropriately anymore. You know, it's almost like I can do a little dance up here going, this is wonderful, folks, that I don't have to be the, I don't know what words to say, but the person that was always there, somehow or another, irritated and upset to the point where other people got upset around me. I don't have to be that anymore. But again, it's not just the flesh then the Bible makes it very clear that there's a very real enemy. He's not some figment of human imagination. He's not an idea. He's not a concept. I ran across a person, didn't talk to her. I talked to her husband. She happens to believe that any element of the demonic is really tied to the flesh. There is no such thing as as demons. And I want to say that's not what the Bible says. Notice in your notes, first, seven things. He is real. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Let's go back to the sovereignty element. I do not understand this verse of Scripture. I receive it and accept it because I believe that it's the Word of God. I have no idea why the enemy allowed or was allowed by God access to Peter. And then I would believe from Scripture now that we allow access sometimes and... Not a matter of God granting it, but simply we open doors ourselves. Number two, the enemy rules the world. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway or the influence of the wicked one. Number three, he is determined to destroy humanity. After Jesus had gone through the sifting process, he writes back to the church in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. It's in your notes. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. And by the way... A roaring lion has teeth. I've heard this before. That is, well, he's a roaring lion, but he hasn't any teeth. Now, you follow some of us around, ministers especially, where we minister and we are working in the lives of people. And you find out the enemy has some very big teeth, my friend. It's just that when I say that, I want to make sure that that you understand what I believe the Scriptures to say. And that is that because I and you have received Jesus, then greater is he who is in me. But I want to make sure that I'm staying obedient to the Lord. What does the enemy do? Walks around doing what? Seeking whom he may devour. Now, the question then becomes, how does the enemy of our soul devour an individual? Because there has to be a way in which he works to destroy the human being. And by and large, it's summed up into some very simple but very emotional elements of who we are. Worry will destroy you. It will kill you. It's one of the reasons why the Bible tells us that we're not to worry. And I want to know, Lord, how can I not worry when I just do worry? And the answer is, Peter said, listen, casting all of our care upon Him. But all of that that I'm sharing with you right now is pretty much like swimming. You don't learn to swim until you do what? You get in the water. You don't learn to resist the devil until... You've had some opportunity to do so and you begin to do it and ask God for help in understanding, how do I do this? I've ridden horses since I've been 10 years of age, quite a bit down through the years, off and on, and wanted to be a rodeo cowboy actually because my grandfather had a riding academy. He had a, uh, I had a wonderful opportunity to ride. I still have today except that I kind of broke my neck or so on a horse about 10 years ago. I don't ride too much anymore. At Point. You don't learn to ride a horse until you get on the horse. You can read all the books. You can take all the lessons. But you have to do what? Get on the horse. You don't learn to put the principles of Scripture into action until you have an opportunity to do so. The enemy? Worry, anxiety, depression, discouragement. These are all things that destroy. One of the things that as a writer, I write for a number of Christian uh Publications, And as a writer, one of the deepest concerns that I have right now is the dissension that's in the body of Christ across this land. Horrendous amount of division within the body. I believe that's another area. We'll get to it before we quit this morning. The enemy would love to bring dissension, division to the body of Christ. But even before he hits the body of Christ, he's hitting marriages, Christian marriages, to where you begin to look and you say, well, that's a Christian marriage, and they're getting a divorce, and that's a Christian marriage. And if you, I asked for hands this morning as to how many have been up against a very difficult marriage, hands would go up all over the place because they do just about in every single place that I go. Is there a solution to that? Jesus is always a solution to anything that the enemy would disrupt or destroy. And so... My wife and I have been married now for 43 years this last August. I have no idea how that happened. Because I went to bed at 35 years of age enjoying life and woke up at 65. It's just kind of, now I'm only saying that to old people right now. How many understand what I just said? You went to bed one day and all of a sudden you woke up and, uh, it's a matter of where did it go. It just went. Now, old is anybody over 45 years of age or anybody that has to clip your the nose in your hair, or your the hair in your nose. <laughs> That's old. So, I'm old. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> strange thing about it is I don't feel old. How many of you old guys out there, old gals, want to say, I don't feel a day over 18. I can still... There's something that still wants to function as far as my mind is concerned. My body just doesn't function that way any I'm s- anymore. I'm still young. Uh, what a beauty that is in Jesus, as I see so many people today that are in their 80s and are still, as Christians, functioning correctly. Their minds are not getting old. In terms of negativism or bitterness or criticism, I just want to say we have a great God, my friend, an incredibly great God, a wonderful God. When we look at it. But we're still in battle. And that's the enigma. That goes back to, Lord, why is there this raging war going on? So let's go a little bit further in in your notes. Number five. Number four. The Bible says that he is an angel of light. And no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. There are four verses of Scripture in the New Testament that say this, Do not be deceived. Every once in a while I run across a deceived person. I can't believe how they have come to believe what is in their mind. Let Jesus be in residence, folks. Stay in the Word, stay in prayer, stay in fellowship. Illustration. How many remember a man by the name of Jim Jones? How many remember a man by the name of David Koresh? How many remember a man by the name of David, or I correct that, Marshall Applewhite? Some years ago, the Halebock Comet. Remember that that came over? He's the one that led forty plus people or so to suicide. Jim Jones, exactly the same thing. It's said that Jim Jones was rather right on in his early years of preaching and teaching. Something got in that destroyed. Now, I'm always concerned about that personally. I don't want the arrogance that basically says, I can never be deceived, when the Bible says, be not what? Deceived. And so I believe there are basically three ways to stay away from deception. Number one is stay in the Word, stay in the Word, stay in the Word, stay in the Word. Number two is prayer. Boy, these are things. Number three is fellowship. Those are the three hardest things in my life. You say, why is reading hard? Because I'd rather be riding horses or doing something else. But I do it anyhow. And then, of course, there are times when I read an entire chapter. I read an entire verse sometimes and can't remember what I just read. At that particular moment, you're going to be tempted to give up and not go any further. And I want to say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Stay reading, stay it, stay it, stay it. Because the Holy Spirit is faithful and He will bring that, as I mentioned a moment, ago, go back to your understanding when you need it. So I don't like to read, but I do it anyhow. What about prayer? Well, I'll tell you, the first years of my Christian experience were extremely difficult when it came to Prayer. Because there were people that would say if you pray more than once for something, you evidently didn't have faith the first time you prayed. And so therefore, God didn't answer you. And then I began to understand it's not my faith, it's his faith anyhow. But the element of confusion was always there for me. And it was just a matter of, until I learned, probably the greatest truth I learned in prayer was that prayer was not primarily asking God for things. Prayer is more than, now I lay me down to rest, tomorrow I've got another test. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I'll have to take. (laughs) No, my friend, when you learn that prayer is praise, prayer is worship, prayer is thanksgiving, prayer is waiting upon the Lord, prayer is reading this word, and it's all simply because prayer is a divine communication system. It's learning to get to know God. And so, basically, I try every day of my life to spend less than an hour with God. Now, I don't want to put that some kind of legalism on you. It's a matter if you can make it 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Me, I'd rather now make it three hours. Because what I used to didn't like because it was so hard to do, now I absolutely love it's the best part of my day. I'm a pretty good horseback rider. Pretty good. I'll be a better prayer. Prayer warriors suit too sometimes if I just keep going and seeking God. Many days I can't pray, I just sit in the presence of the Lord. This is my time to spend alone with God. Do it. Do it. And then what's the last one? Fellowship. There's a pretty amazing movement right now. Bad movement, really. It's called the anti-church movement. And you'll find people today that are going to do everything they can possibly do to get you away from the church. They'll accuse the church of being dead. Accuse the church of all kinds of different things, don't follow it, don't get into it. The Bible says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as such is the manner of some. The enemy of your soul, my soul, would dearly love to get us away from each other because then he's going to have more influence and more of an ability to twist and somehow or control the mind. But fellowship is hard. Fellowship is hard for me. Can Can I just kind of lay away, lay aside spirit, spirituality for a moment. I'm not here to offend anybody. I'm here to make a point. The word is hard because I don't like to read. I do it anyhow. Prayer is hard because I can't think of what to say sometimes and so forth. I do it anyhow. Fellowship is hard. You say, why? Why is fellowship hard? Because some of you people are jerks. That's all there is to it. Now, this is for illustration purposes only. Of course, every time I say that, God says, yeah, and I know one more. All I'm trying to say is simply this, there are no perfect people in God's economy. There are no perfect people in, in, in this church. Your pastor is not a perfect person, but he has been called to lead this church. I have been called to be a teacher. I'm not a perfect person. I probably will say something every time I come to this, I love to come to this church, this is the third time, but I'll probably say something that will offend somebody. I'm not perfect not perfect. And when I get that in mind, then I can fellowship so much better. My pastor is not a perfect person. He doesn't preach exactly the way I'd like him to preach. But I do believe he's been called by God to stand behind that pulpit and deliver the Word of God. And so I pray for him. I pray for the staff. I'm interested in unity in the body of Christ. The enemy is interested in division. This, my friend, is warfare. To get the body of Christ divided. Number five, he must be understood. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Why? Why why was Paul a forgiving person? Because he knew that the enemy would take some kind of control, some kind of influence in that person's life. And so Paul says, listen, I'm interested in the forgiveness thing. And there's a whole element that's huge concerning forgiveness doesn't mean that I have to somehow or another embrace that person doesn't mean any it means simply I'm not going to hold any grudges any longer I know a man right now that refuses to forgive and I've never seen him, I personally for me personally I've never seen a man more miserable than spent. absolutely miserable and I've talked to him about it and his attitude is no matter how much you you can, you can ask me to forgive I'm not going to forgive that's all there is to it And boy, you turn into a very negative, bitter, critical person after a short period of time. And Jesus says, listen, if you refuse to forgive, then how can you ask the Father to forgive you? Boy, pretty serious stuff there, wouldn't you agree with me? I mean, it's big time. You say, Ray, I just can't forgive. Maybe it's because you don't understand what forgiveness is. It doesn't mean that the relationship will ever go back to something perfect. It doesn't mean that you have to have a continued relationship. It means simply, I'm not going to have some element of bitterness. I'm not going to have some element of animosity held towards that individual. I'm releasing that individual to God so I don't have to worry about it anymore. Meaning simply, that person, Lord, belongs to you right now. What about this one? He must be resisted. So that anywhere that I understand that the enemy's at work, I need to resist him. Well, I'll tell you what folks, do everything possibly, men and women both, to stay away from pornography. Because that's a resistance of the enemy. He would dearly love you and me to get involved in that. Uh, lust. There're just so many different things, drugs, not just illegal drugs, but there're sometimes that we use drugs simply prescribed by the doctor. Uh, that we're using them incorrectly. I, I, when I broke my neck, those many years ago, they put me on Vicodin. And I'm so glad that I had the Holy Spirit living within me because, <laughs> can I just say it like this? Vicodin is the most wonderful drug in the world. It was kind of like, to get more Vicodin, I, I here's what, I'll break my neck every week. Just keep me on my, because it, you know, after you've been on some kind of even medication that the doctor has prescribed and you begin to realize what it does. Now I'm not saying don't take aspirin and don't do all of these unless you have some kind of a conviction against these things. I'm simply saying we can get overboard on just about anything and rely on things. Some of us in this room have to rely on pain medication. So I'm not saying don't do that. I'm simply saying watch very carefully. And then if you do, I think it's good to simply say, Lord, I'm on this thing, but perhaps you would heal me. And I don't have to be on it. How many understand? I'm trying to draw a balance here right now, is all. And so he must be resisted. Then, number seven, he must be fought. Jesus said, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. Mostly what I would like to emphasize here is an offensive approach to the enemy of our soul rather than a defensive approach. It's so easy sometimes to recognize that here's somebody, demon spirits, evidently have a lot of power. We can say that from what they have done to, dis, to destroy our world. The simple fact that we don't always know or understand or perceive or know them, how they work and so forth, uh, is very easy to be afraid. My friend, do not be afraid of the enemy. But at the same time, do not allow yourself to somehow or another just go out there and arbitrarily, if you will, I begin to rebuke or whatever. It's a matter of, well, we have control. Let me say it this way. We have authority under Jesus. And that's it. All power belongs to him both in heaven and on earth. And I must operate within that. And so the operation of that in my life goes more along the lines of this. When I am super worried, worried, uh, not just casually or even sometimes deeply concerned, but the worry has got a hold of me so that it's turned into a panic attack, I know this. First of all, I can ask God for help. If that's got a demonic uh, somehow or another uh, base to it, the worry that is, then I can come against that and say, I refuse to worry because it is written. What's written? He has not given me a spirit of fear. I, here's what I'm trying to say. We've got a whole lot more authority than most of us in this room recognize. And again, like riding a horse or swimming, it's a matter of not learning the process of how to make these things work and work correctly. Next page. Typical ways in which the enemy works. These are all out of Scripture. Now, before I get into the second element here, let me go through three and four and then back to number, number two or the second one. Skip down to the middle of the page, third. Four misconceptions about the, the, the devil or demons every Christian must know. The word devil refli- actually literally refers to Lucifer, the prince of the demons, and then there's the demonic after that. Uh, we can say it this way just for a short little tributary. Uh, Lucifer himself is a created being. He cannot be in one place, more than one place at one time. And so to carry out the evil we find in this world, we have fallen angels or demons that carry out that particular uh, element. Uh, here's the thing now that we must understand. I'm, forgive me for not putting the scriptures behind each of these. But it is a misconception to believe that the enemy or demons cannot bother Christians. The Bible is too full of scriptural material that indicates that the enemy does indeed do everything he can to tempt, do everything he can to destroy, do everything he can to somehow or another uh, uh, get us deceived. Number two, he can't influence Christians. And I want to say, no, I've met an awfully lot of Christians, and probably you have too, that for a time, at least, they had headed down a very, very wrong road. And it was obviously something that was causing this to happen that was beyond their own mental thinking. How many have discovered Christians like that? Put your hand up. I want to see where you're at. Anybody so bold as to say, I've been that way at times, and the Lord has just kind of brought me back? and Anybody here? A number of you. That he can't deceive a true believer. This is a tough one because we're into the sovereignty of God now. How much sovereignty is there over uh, the enemy of our soul and over these things happening? Well, I don't know exactly. I do believe this. You and I serve a sovereign God. But again, it's hard to understand why the enemy happens to exist. Now, the Bible says this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. It says, and they, that's God's people, overcame. Notice the terminology. They overcame. Why? Because they were up against the enemy often. They overcame the enemy of our soul. And they, that's God's people, overcame him. Now, it says that they overcame by The blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I admit I'm giving you a tremendous amount of material this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 4. I want you to see it. If you're writing your Bibles, I underline it, put little bomb blasts beside it. When you get home, color it in orange or sartreuse or something pretty good. What I'm saying, don't forget this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. What does it say? For the weapons. There it is, right there. For the weapons. I have 49 weapons in my arsenal. Because I'm serious about staying away from worry and anxiety and depression and discouragement and low self-esteem and a host of other things. And I'm more serious about pleasing God with the way that I live. Number one, weapon. In a Christian arsenal, I believe personally is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, number one. The blood of Jesus brought me into relationship. The blood of Jesus has taken care of the sin question. Far more information there than I'm just giving you right now. The second weapon, I believe, is the word of God. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, which is the written word. It's the word behind your testimony. He overcame by these. I believe praise is a weapon. I believe worship is a weapon. 49 different weapons. I believe unity is a powerful weapon. Powerful weapon. Now, I'd like to use the the illustration of my wife, and if she were here right now, I would use it, you know, regardless. Um, I think I would. Linda and I are unified, but we do not agree. You have to be unified to stay together for 43 years. We don't agree on anything, or very little. You say, how can you get along so well? Because there's such a vast difference between unity and agreement. When we placed, 43 years ago, our lives together in Jesus, we agreed to be unified at that particular point. I had no idea that we wouldn't agree. I thought that she would always agree with me, which I believe is correct and right. Laugh a little, would you? But she hadn't over the years. Uh, she likes vacationing on the seashore. I like it in the mountains. She likes a certain color. I like a different color. She likes this. Uh, we don't agree with how we take care of the house. We don't agree with how we do this. We don't agree with uh, how we spend money necessarily. We, we just don't agree on anything, it would seem. On Jesus, we agree. But we agree on this, though, that we're going to stay together, we're going to stay unified. And amazingly, though we do not agree, we are extremely happy. See, that doesn't make sense. Oh, my friend, it makes a lot of sense. It really does. Because no two people with free will will ever agree on anything. You will never, never agree with any other person in life 100%. It just won't happen. Sadly, some people choose to find all of the people in the world that they agree with, and that's the only ones that they're going to have fellowship with, and then they find they really can't agree with all of them, so now they have to be in control of them, and all of a sudden you've got a very, very religious but not Christian thing going on. And I want to say be real careful of that. And say, so, well, how do you guys get along so well? It's called unity. Occasionally we argue. I'm always right, but I, I certainly am willing to allow her to... No, <laughs> There are times when I have to back off and simply say, man, I've proven myself trying to get my point across sometimes wrong in so many different ways that after a while I just want to shut up simply because I don't want to make any more mistakes anymore and have to feel embarrassed when she was right and I was wrong. Where you at out there, married people? You know what I'm trying to say right now in part two? It's what an incredible God we have that is working so often. And I don't see it to which this is every day of my life now. I want to say, Lord, you're an incredible God. You're a phenomenal God to be able to unify and keep people together. Now, let that translate into your neighborhood, too. Besides my dog, we've got a barking dog in the neighborhood next door. Often. Boy, I'll tell you, barking dog doesn't bother me unless it's in the middle of the night and it wakes me up. Has anybody ever kind of been a little bit unsanctified, if I can use that word, and just kind of wanted to do something like, I don't know, maybe let the dog out sometime and just, you know, it just suddenly disappeared or something? How many have a mind that begins to kind of engineer certain things and elements? How many have also learned, though, that you can say, Lord, I can't handle this, You better do it. There's times when I want to say, Lord, I can't do it. You need to do it. Help me. you got 30 seconds on this one. Incredible God we serve. Incredibly wonderful, wonderful, wonderful God. How about this one? If we neglect him, he will go away. No, you can read this, you can leave this uh, service this morning, this Sabbath morning, and and say simply, that sounded good, and yeah, I believe it was the word of God, and so forth, and not do anything, and my friend, you will continue to have emotional problems for the rest of your life until you begin to realize, Paul is telling us, Jesus is telling us, we need to fight. Now, here's the thing that I found that's so incredible. I'm not a fighter, necessarily, unless you get my face. That used to be, that's not anymore. I've discovered this about warfare as a pastor now for almost 35 years, getting close to it. Here's what I've discovered about war. It's easier to fight the good fight than it is to simply drift. It's easier to fight. It's easier to make myself get into the Word, into that understanding. And here's why. Because when I don't understand and something comes along down the road that's going to cause the worries and anxieties and I don't know how to fight it, I'll tell you what, I go through a horrendous element of trying to understand what I'm going through, which I would have had the, if I had the information. It would have been so much easier to put that thing to rest right away by using the Word of God. Now, the fourth one. Five basic truths about the devil every Christian must know. Now, these are the wonderful things. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Keep that. That's a good refrigerator scripture. It really is. Type it out. Write it out. Stick it on the refrigerator so you don't forget it. How about this one? We are more than conquerors. That's not true. We are not more than conquerors. I tricked you. We are more than conquerors you got it. You got it. It's always through Him. The moment you start to try to conquer on your own, you go back to Romans chapter 7, it will never work. We need Jesus every single day of our life. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ in me. I say, but that's going to lead us into a kind of a passive life. No, my friend, it does not lead into a passive life. We still have the ability to think and reason and make choices and so forth. It's just along the lines every once in a while we begin to realize that we're dissipating in some particular area with a bad thought, a negative thought. You know, I don't ever recall having a negative thought till the day I got saved. That to me tells that there was some element of warfare. And and then the, the enemy coming along, and I know this was the enemy, And saying simply, you didn't get saved. Because if you were really saved, you wouldn't think that way. And so I got saved 476 times the first two years of my Christian experience. I got saved every time I came to church, just about. Now today, all these years later, I know this. I got saved the first time. So how do you know that? Because after I got saved, all of a sudden I've got a conscience. All of a sudden I'm concerned about the things of the Lord. All of a sudden, I can't steal, lie, or cheat or any of those things. That's a lie. <laughs> I could still steal, lie, and cheat after I got saved. I just couldn't get away with it. And I just want to say, wow, real guilt, that saved my life. The conviction concerning real guilt. Because the more I began to do those wrong things or continued, the more the guilt, and it was real guilt, not false guilt. And suddenly I got the idea you know, if you don't want the guilt, quit sinning. I don't know how how much a person can get excited in this church, but I'll tell you what. I can get excited over Jesus. But, but not just in a religious sense. In the sense that so much that was wrong with our lives has turned out to be so good today, but only because of the Savior of our souls. Is it all right if I sit here? I'm tired, is what it is. <laughs> I prepared long and hard for this sermon. Maybe, I know God still works in us. Notice this. This is a further indication. I love this verse of Scripture. Philippians 2.13. Here's what it says. It is God who works in you. It is what? God who works in you. Now, you may have had this kind of a Christian experience. You got saved, if I can use that word. And from that point on, you begin to believe that God simply was monitoring everything that you did in life to see how well you were going to do. My friend, that has nothing to do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with the Word of God. And I'm not trying to bring some kind of element of uh, false grace. I'm, I'm not trying to exclude by any means holiness and righteousness because we are holy people. We believe in this church holiness. We believe in righteousness we do not believe that we can use the grace of God as a license to sin. But here's what we do believe. That in our weakness, we have the strength of God if we learn to swim. If we learn how to appropriate that, that element of God's grace against my stubbornness. Anybody been stubborn And then all of a sudden, God begins to relieve the stubbornness. How many of you like yourself better? You're just easier to live with after you. How many have been rebellious, just downright rebellious? Come on, put your hand up. Is God working against that? Because when he works against it, all of a sudden you're kind of going, wow, I didn't really have to work at this, did I? I just took God's help and his strength, and suddenly I'm not the rebellious person I used to be. God is not monitoring you to see how well you can do. Here's a reason he's not monitoring you to see how well you can do, because all of our righteousness is as but filthy rags, not a condemnation. But to simply say, you try to do it on your own without some kind of help from heaven, and you're just going to be frustrated with constant guilt and condemnation. And then we have the power to resist the enemy. Number five, God is still still has keeping power. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. <laughs> I love that verse Scripture. God's going to take care of me until that day. Let's go up to the second one. I, I want to do this and then I'm on to Hemet. I don't get to go back to the nice cool coast. I used to live here in Valencia. I'm so sorry for you folks. In the middle of the summer. Because when I go home, I get to go home and to, boy, we didn't hardly hit 75 degrees this year over there. I mean, it was more in the late, in the 60s. It was just, a, and so I understand you're going to be hot here today. Uh, it's going to be worse than Hemet, so I'm not bragging about anything. Uh, here's here's what's hard to understand. Uh, the enemy blinds the minds of men. But I'm a Christian, I can't be blinded. No, the Bible says, do not be deceived, because you can be blinded but you 're not going to be blinded because you 're going to stay with jesus you 're going to stay walking with Jesus, no fear but there 's that potential. Uh, he masquerades as an angel of light i 've already mentioned such individuals as Jim Jones and so forth and one, I remember one of the deceptions years ago it was in the '60s and '70s basically. It really had to do with what people were thinking of concerning the world at that particular time. If you study history, my favorite element of history is the 20th century. If you study 20th century history, you see all kinds of ups and downs. At the first part of the 20th century, tremendous problem with socialism entering America. And a constant continual fight to stay the independent kind and type of country that you and I happen to be, or happen to be involved in. Uh, when you get into... The religious element, there was ups and downs in terms of holiness and righteousness. Beginning of the 20th century, tremendous amount of interest among people for a godly lifestyle. I would say, Lord, bring that back again. Bring that back again. And then by the time you get to the 60s, late 60s and early 70s, you find people were very much disgruntled with the world in which we lived. Uh, Even the non-believer. And so they developed what were called communes. Does anybody old enough to remember what a commune was? But then the Christians began to do that. And you'll see that now in the days ahead, I believe, without question. Uh, maybe sometime you'll leave a Sabbath morning and you'll go back out to your car and it'll be a beautiful, well-written brochure. Somebody snuck into the parking lot, put a brochure. And what it's going to tell you is how bad the world is and the only way to escape the world is to get rid of all of your earthly possessions, sell your cars, your home, and everything else and move with this group of people up to a piece of property, two, three, four, five thousand acres up in the middle of nowhere and that's where we're going to stay until Jesus comes. Don't do it. It has never, ever worked. Now, I'm not talking about retreat centers like this church happens to have and places to go where you can spend time alone with God and so forth. I'm talking about the escaping from the world. The Bible teaches, Jesus said, be in the world but not of the world. Be insulated, meaning filled with the Spirit of the Lord, but not isolated. Isolated. See, that's so hard. When I go to work, I have to listen to this, I have to listen to that. Does anybody in this room just kind of hate to go to work because of the ungodly you have to work around? Where are you at? Put your hands up. I want to see. Nobody? Because I was going to pray over you. Okay. Because how sad it happens to be when you love Jesus and you go to work and somebody's using his name in vain, maybe sitting not too awfully far from you or whatever, and then find out you know the Lord and start making fun of you. That's hard. That's hard. That's extremely hard sometimes. Or to have a spouse that doesn't love the Lord at all. It makes you, wreck, you know, feel very badly uh, in your dedication to Jesus. What about the next one? We talked about number three already, rules the world. He doesn't own the world. Psalm 24, verse 1, don't misunderstand what I'm saying now. Jesus is the creator, Colossians chapter 1. God owns the world. It's just that the hearts of certain individuals, they refuse to be owned of the Lord. And so, then he steals, kills, and destroys. You can look these verses of Scripture up a little bit later on. He steals the Word. I remember as a young Christian, I would read the Word and then somebody would come along and it would cause a doubt to whether this was really real or not. I doubted my salvation. I doubted whether God was real. A lot of humanistic teaching in the world in which you and I live, uh, you know what I've discovered with doubt? If you have some strong doubts, leave them alone for about three days or so, and you do discover that they have a tendency to just kind of slip out. Why? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And the truth will remain because the truth is not a, a, a particular way of looking at something. The truth is Jesus. He said, I am the truth. I am the truth. And then he accuses God's people. Oh, my. Difference between real guilt and a difference between condemnation. See, what's the difference between the two? When I do wrong, I know I've done wrong. Does anybody understand what I just said? It's a matter of, I know. You don't have to tell me. But the enemy would like to take your sin from the past. That you have confessed before the Lord. And according to Scripture, when you confess and God forgives, the meaning in Scripture is as if it never happened. You know, we almost ought to, you know, we're pretty conservative people, but we almost at that point should shout unto the Lord a thanksgiving. You mean, all, all, yeah, gone. Not to ever be remembered ever again in the court of heaven or any other place, except the enemy will bring it up. He'll bring it up. Uh, the moment you begin to make a new decision for Jesus, he, he'll bring your past up. Uh, the moment you step out in some new element of faith, and I'm hoping there are people that are going to step out, this day, this Sabbath morning, and afterwards make a commitment to the word, make a commitment to unity, make a commitment to your marriage, make a commitment i 'm not talking about Bible files vows i 'm simply saying making new commitments. and moment so what you do you can be guaranteed to this. the enemy's going to try everything he can to stop you, but he can only try so long before ultimately he 's going to get tired because you 're going to resist, just as a matter of no. I'm not going to listen to this. I'm going to continue to go on. I'm going to continue to do what the Bible says and what is right to do. He teaches doctrines. Doctrines of demons is what they're called. I have a whole list of them, a huge list of them, in fact. I don't have them with me. Um, I'm not sure how to get them to you. Maybe I can, if you, if you ask pastor to have me mail some of these things, I can mail you all the weapons of warfare uh, Overcomers Ministries, www.overcomersministries. No, I'll, let me give you my personal email. It's the letter R and then the word Beeson, B-E-E-S-O-N 500, R-B-E-S-O-N 500, at AOL.com. Uh, just ask for them, I'll mail them to you, free of charge. Because I want you to see some of the things that I hope will help you. He sows tears. I think literally the negative, bitter, critical individual sometimes amongst us is a terror. You say, not saved? No, I'm not saying that. Number nine, causes sicknesses and diseases. Number ten, hinders praying. Classical example, Daniel. We're back in those days, though. We didn't have the same access to heaven as we do today. The Holy Spirit gives us instantaneous access. Now, being a scientist, personally, myself, in mathematics at least... I'm very interested in the subject of physics and believing a little bit about Einstein where he says there's nothing faster than the speed of light. I believe the speed of the Spirit is faster than the speed of light. (laughs) So that when Jesus lives in you, a thought turned heavenward is instantly entertained at the throne of God. But it wasn't like that in the Old Testament because the Holy Spirit hadn't been given. And so angels, the word angel means messengers, they took a prayer up to heaven and got the answer and brought it back down again. Daniel prayed. Angel took the prayer, brought it back. But he couldn't get through the land of... Does anybody remember where he couldn't get through? Persia, which is Iran today. The Bible says that this angel went back to heaven, got Michael... Michael came and fought through. Can you imagine this angel just showing up one day next to Daniel and saying, I'm sorry for being late? 21 days he was late bringing the answer. Uh, Forget that. Remember this. is that God answers prayer. You don't always find that petition, which is the asking part, gets answered immediately. But you see, if petition is just a part of prayer, then all the other parts of prayer are always in effect. So worship prayer is in effect. Thanksgiving is in effect. All the other kinds of prayer. And so don't ever use the terminology, I beg you, don't ever use the terminology unanswered prayer. It's not unanswered prayer. It's unanswered petition, at least for the moment. Well then, besides hindering uh, praying, he deceives. He deceives. The enemy deceives. And that's why I mentioned there are at least four times in the New Testament which the Bible says, two Christians. Now, do not be what? Be deceived. The enemy is called a deceiver. A deceiver. Now, in closing this morning, I, I, I don't want to end on a negative note. I really don't. But the last thing that is so important to understand concerning the enemy, and I know this can be a very negative subject, the enemy of our soul, even the flesh in which we live. I feel so positive about my Christian experience. I feel so positive about Christians around me. I'm so glad when I see people come to Jesus. Are you with me on that? All right. And so there's no intention right now to end on a negative note. But there is an intention right now that we understand, that we understand the Scripture. And so I want you to turn with me to two verses of Scripture, Proverbs chapter 6 to begin with, and then James chapter 3. So Proverbs chapter 6. I I can tell you this, I'm not fond of this verse of Scripture, even though I feel a little bit better about it today because my life has got cleaned up concerning it. Proverbs chapter 6 beginning with verse 16. Verse 16. Here's an interesting thought: Does God hate people? I'm tricking you all the time. So just after a while, when people, uh, I ask questions, you know, to people in Congress, they stop answering because they don't want to be tricked anymore. All right, the Bible does say that these six things the Lord does what? He hates. And then the writer of the Proverbs, Solomon, says, "No, hold on, wait a minute, just a minute." Seven are an abomination to him. And then he starts listing them. Number one is a proud look. Of course, arrogance is always, always, always uh, a horrible thing to enter anybody. It's the root of Satan's problem, actually. Uh, A lying tongue. Um, I meet people every once in a while. I suppose you could call them. Um, What do I want to say? They're just never able to tell the truth. They have learned to lie, and they just can't seem to tell the truth. The sad element of that is that people begin to recognize that after a period of time. And although they would like to love them or like to be around them, after a while you just find yourself pushing, just being pushed away from certain people. A third one, hands that shed innocent blood. Four, a heart that deceives wicked plans. Feet that are swift and running to evil. Number six, a false witness who speaks lies. And then I got to seven, and I began to realize I got a problem. I got a problem. Now, mostly by the time I really began to zero in on this, there had been such an incredible work of God in my life that much of it had been taken care of. One who does what? Sows discord among the brethren. If I understand the body of Christ correctly, the Bible says that God places each of us in the body as he sees fit. He has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But I'm a hung, young high school teacher at the time, and uh, my pastor is a wonderful guy, wonderful, wonderful man in a lot of ways, but he certainly wasn't, how can I say, vibrant in terms of teaching us in ways that we could apply the word on a daily basis. He was old. He was at least 45, 46, 47 at the time. Something like that. As a relatively, uh, not, how can I say it, uh, unlearned Christian, if you will, but full of zeal, and I'm teaching high school, and I'm having a ball in life, I've got a brand new wife, and I've got a brand new child, and everything is coming along, and I'm just having, uh, life was at its apex at that time, and it still is in a lot of ways, but I didn't like what was going on in church, and then I ran around with a nuclear physicist, an attorney, and a couple of computer programmers, before we ever understood what a PC was. And so there's five of us guys that ran around together. And all of a sudden, I'm finding that a lot of other people don't feel the same way as I do. We kind of like our pastor, we don't like... And this has nothing to do with your pastor. It has to do more so with the fact that the body of Christ is so divided across America today, and it has a tremendous amount to do with democracy. Which democracy is good, but it doesn't work in the kingdom. The new kingdom. You say, why? We don't need collective thinking and ideas, which democracy is and works good in the world, in a theocracy. Because God can give us the direction that we need and we don't have to vote on anything. Am I making sense here? Now, that's a, it's a tough way to think because, you know, I've always been basically a congregationalist in terms of theology, in terms of, well, if we don't like something, we just vote it out. And I want to go... Uh Uh-uh, uh-uh, don't play that game. And I remember I was going to do everything I could to get rid of this pastor. You just stir up things a little bit, and then you go and and, uh, have a vote, and you get rid of him, and away he goes. Have you ever had God speak to you? I mean, there wasn't any question about it. It It's just a matter of God spoke, and you just knew that God spoke. God spoke to my heart one day and said, Ray, you're not going to do any of those things that you're planning on doing. And I knew God spoke, and so I backed up. What I learned is that what I learned was really, the best way to describe it, does anybody remember the Bill Cosby show? I love that TV show. It was a great show. Does anybody remember Bill Cosby's TV son? What was his name? Theo, Theo. that's it. It's almost a godly name, isn't it? Theo. There was a particular episode where Theo and Bill Cosby were arguing on the TV program in, in the, in the uh, segment. And back and forth it went until Bill was tired of the, uh, the, the argument. Uh, and he simply stops and he basically says this, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. <laughs> and you know, when I quit fighting, God took that pastor, put him in a better place, brought us a new pastor that most of us could identify with a whole lot better. God places is the issue. Uh, Jesus is the captain of our salvation, can't work without him. This church belongs to Jesus. Don't mess with it. God's sheep don't mess with them. Now, I'm writing a brand new book on this. That's why it's kind of fresh in my mind. They're not your sheep to mess with. The sheep belongs to Jesus. And boy, when I get that in the back of my mind, easier to pray, easier to submit it to the Lord, easier to forgive, easier to recognize. Lord, though I don't necessarily like parts and pieces of what's happening. I'm not big enough to understand just exactly what you allow or don't allow, number one. And Lord, I really need help in understanding spiritual warfare. Are you with me? Okay. Father God, we thank you for your great grace, your mercy, but especially, Lord, we thank you right now for the indwelling Christ. We thank you, Lord, that the problems that we face... Lord, you can help us with them, and that we will overcome. Lord, I pray a blessing upon this house. May it be that your Holy Spirit will guide us in the days ahead into deeper truths. May it be, Lord, that you will bless us, especially in a difficult hour, and a difficult day, with the sustenance, the things that we need in this life. Now, Lord, go with us and bless us during the course of this day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.